Recent developments in relation to costs against non-parties, experts and capping the liability of commercial funders. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, Peter Hurst here. Today's speaker is Marion Smith, QC. Marion has extensive experience in representing and advising clients in Europe and the ASEAN region in a broad range of commercial and construction matters. She's also regularly appointed as a neutral dispute resolver, arbitrator, adjudicator and expert determiner. She's deputy chair of the Chartered Institute of Arbitration's trustee board and the International Committee of the Bar Council. She lectures at Queen Mary University of London, is a professional fellow at Aston University, and is a contributing author to Global Arbitration Reviews, The Guide to Construction Arbitration, 3rd edition, 2019. She is consistently ranked in the leading directories and described in one this year, as technically superb, great at very complex matters, and very personable. Marion is talking today about costs against non-parties, experts, and capping the liability of commercial funders. She's going to concentrate on two aspects. Both have recently been considered by the courts. First, obtaining a costs order against an expert and the decision in Thymeyer against Lancashire NHS Foundation Trust, which is 30th of January 2020, the County Court of Manchester, and second, the cap on recovery of costs from a commercial funder and the decision in Chapelgate Credit Opportunity Master Fund Limited against James Money, 2020, EWCA Civ, 246. Hello, I'm Marion Smith QC, a barrister at 39 Essex. I'm talking today about obtaining an order for costs against a non-party, and I'm going to look at two aspects, both recently considered by the courts. The first one is obtaining a costs order against an expert, and the decision in Timea and Lancashire NHS Foundation Trust. The second is the cap on recovery of costs from a commercial funder and the decision in Chapelgate Credit Opportunity Master Fund Limited and James Money. Why does this matter? Anecdotally, it appears that there has been a general increase in applications for costs against non-parties. But as ever, there is no data to support that. But it feels like common sense, doesn't it? And it also seems like common sense, as the global and domestic economies are in freefall, that we are going to see more. The jurisdiction's not novel. There are three basic principles well established. The first, it's the exercise of a statutory discretion. It's established by the Senior Courts Act 1981. As is stressed time and time again, the decision to award costs against third parties is fact sensitive. It absolutely turns on the facts. And the third point, causation matters. 
there has to be a causal link between the involvement of the third party and the incurring of costs by the applicant. These principles underpin the jurisdiction and they're going to guide anyone towards the right answer when you're faced by a client asking that question, am I going to win with this application? Costs orders against an expert. Anyone listening to this who's any experience of litigation knows how important the expert evidence can be. And in TCC and commercial matters, it is quite often decisive. We also know that the costs of obtaining expert evidence can also be very high. The messaging from the courts since the 1990s has been very clear. Experts must be objective. That basic principle is set out and repeated in the CPR 35. And the message has been clear. If you don't meet that standard, you will be held accountable. You will be held accountable to those who instruct you as immunity has now clearly been taken away from an expert. Experts are not immune from suit in relation to the evidence they give in court. But accountability to the other side is harder to establish. An expert can be named and shamed. Judges in the TCC and commercial court have not been reluctant to do that. We can all think of examples. They can be referred to the regulator. That too has happened. And whilst both of those steps may give the other side an acknowledgement that something has gone wrong, it won't produce any recompense. And it's that that matters. The jurisdiction to award costs against experts starts with Phillips and Symes, a decision in 2004 of Mr Justice Peter Smith. I'll refer to the expert in that case as Dr Z because no findings were ever ultimately made against him. The application was made on the basis that recklessly irresponsibly and wholly outside the bounds of how any reasonable psychiatrist preparing an opinion for the court could probably have acted, the substance of his opinion was wrong. Mr Justice Peter Smith, at first instance, said that in principle, an expert could be held liable to pay compensation to parties who suffered loss by reason of their alleged gross dereliction of duties under Section 51. As he said, an order could be made, if appropriate, against an expert who causes significant expense to be incurred and does so in flagrant, reckless disregard of his duties to the court. And there it stopped. From 2004, the case was regularly referred to in the CPR 35 as the basis of the jurisdiction to award costs in an appropriate case against an expert. In the last six years, we have two family public law cases, illustrating the application of the principles. Now, the facts matter, as I said at the outset, and both involve access to children. The sums wasted or allegedly wasted are small, but the stakes in the underlying litigation could not be higher. And in both, the court was prepared to order or to approve an order for costs against an expert that had been agreed. We've got the county court decision in 2014 in X against Tremiga Laboratories. That was an application made by all four parties in care proceedings, the local authority, mother, father and the child through her guardian. The application arose based on an error made by Tremiga in a report following blood alcohol testing. 
The report appeared to show that the mother had resumed drinking again. Due to human error, the blood test report showed 1.6% and not 0.2%. It had been caused by a human error, that mistake. But that relapse, apparent relapse, was likely to result in the mother's child staying in care and being adopted. The judge had in fact caused a number of adjournments, further testing, which identified the human clerical error in preparing the report. Different in quality this error is to a flagrant, reckless disregard of duties to the court. But the expert, Trimega, changed its procedures, didn't dispute the power to award costs against an expert, accepted that it was in breach of its duty to the court, and agreed to pay costs of about £17,000. And the judge approved that process, referring to Phillips and Symes. The next example last year, Mr Justice Keehan, a High Court judge, similarly made a non-party costs order against an expert. This time, it was on the basis of a failure to produce reports on time, as ordered. The decision is A against B, C, D, E and F and local authority A, a fact-finding, honour-based violence. That's the title of the action. The judge was clear. There was no good reason why he shouldn't make an order for costs against the expert. The facts are perhaps on one view closer to those in Phillips. The breach of the duty was not the content of the opinion, but a failure serially to comply with court orders, to file the first report on time and to file an addendum on time, both of which had led to the adjournment of two applications. The evidence was that the expert suffered from an adverse health condition which from time to time flared up and caused her difficulties. But as the judge said, a professional witness in accepting forensic work knows that her duty to the court and knows of the importance of filing reports on time. If an expert's health was such that she couldn't be sure that she would be able to comply with court orders, the expert should frankly not have accepted instructions to be a forensic expert witness. That's the backdrop to the decision this year in Timea and Lancashire NHS Foundation Trust. From the outset, let me stress a couple of factors in relation to this decision. The ultimate costs order is far larger than had been involved in both, coming in at just under £90,000. The liability was for all of the proceedings after a set date, and the costs order was made in standard clinical negligence proceedings. So you don't have the same engagement of the public policy and the public interest involving family care proceedings. The breaches went to the substance of the expert's evidence, indeed to the fundamental expertise to act. But the facts are unusual. The trust's application, who'd been the defendant to the clinical negligence proceedings, was brought against the claimant's expert, a consultant surgeon. They flowed, as ever, from the expert's duties under CPR 35. The allegation was the expert should have realised he was not competent to act. The basis for that allegation was that the expert had himself only carried out twice, and then under supervision, the process that he was giving evidence about, and then that he was also not aware of the legal test for breach of duty, 
and he was suffering from psychiatric difficulties. The parties agreed the jurisdiction was to be exercised on the same basis as a wasted costs order. The test applied was whether the expert's conduct was improper, unreasonable or negligent. As facts matter, let me tell you about how the matter had unfolded. At some stage in 2017, during the proceedings, the claimant's solicitor asked the expert to confirm his suitability to report. In November 2017, the expert, suffering from psychiatric difficulties, was off sick from his clinical work, but not his medico-legal work. In 2018, the expert retired from clinical practice. He didn't inform the claimant or her advisors of his medical condition. In that same year, in May 2018, the expert was involved with the preparation of the expert's joint statement and it was there that he referred to best practice, not the usual Bolam or Bolitho test for determining breach of duty in clinical negligence cases. In March 19, 2019, during the trial, during his cross-examination, the expert couldn't articulate the Bolam bolitho test. He ultimately said he didn't know the test to be applied. The claimant had no choice. She discontinued the claim. In 2020, during the, waste, during the costs order application process, the expert accepted with hindsight he was not fit at the time of the trial to give expert evidence due to his mental health problems. But he didn't accept he was unaware of the Bolan Belitho test for breach of duty. The reason he gave for not being unable to articulate the test at trial? He said he had an adverse psychiatric reaction to the defendant's counsel's questioning. That counsel, he said, reminded him of an interrogator who had previously interrogated him in Iraq. The judge ordered the expert to pay the defendant's costs from November 2017 and the costs incurred by the defendant of the costs application itself. The judge said that by the trial, the expert did not have a proper understanding of the test to be applied in giving an opinion as to whether a clinician had been negligent. The reason the expert couldn't answer the questions about breach of duty was his mental health problems. The judge said he should not have continued to act as expert witness, whether in court or in writing or in conference, when he was unable to work in his clinical practice due to his mental health problems. The judge found that the expert's conduct in continuing to act as an expert caused the defendant to incur all of its costs after November 2017 and it was just to order the expert to pay those costs. The expert owed important and significant duties to the court, the judge said. As a result, having failed comprehensively in those duties from November 2017, a public body had incurred significant unnecessary costs. The claimant lost her entitlement to have her case tried on its merits and a considerable amount of court time had been wasted. The judge was not prepared to make an order in relation to the period before November 2017, the period of sickness. She said that the jurisdiction to make a wasted costs order had to be exercised exceptionally and she couldn't find those exceptional facts had occurred in that period. She said the report was not particularly well written, it wasn't particularly well argued. In her view, he wasn't a very good expert. He didn't have a great deal of expertise in carrying out the particular operation. But the judge said there were plenty of not very good experts around. 
plenty of cases where an expert gave an opinion where they were not particularly experienced in the operation concerned. That, you might think of itself, is a fairly depressing indictment of the performance in this area of experts. But I think that there are four points that we can take away from this. The first one, that there must be scope to argue about the precise formulation of the principle to be applied when seeking a costs order as a third party against an expert. It's been put in a variety of ways. It is not the exercise of the wasted costs jurisdiction. Number of questions remain to be answered. Must the conduct be reckless? It's going to be difficult to set a principle and the court will want to avoid penalising an expert for an unpopular view, alarming experts in this field and therefore leading to a smaller pool of available experts. It will also be protective of legal professional privilege. It will not want to endorse any application which might lead to an improper challenge to legal professional privilege. You're going to have to be able to point to a public and probably an egregious example of default. Second point, Timia is of limited weight as a precedent, its decision at the, at the county court level. All of these cases turn on their facts, but it is an example of a trend. And you have now three first instance decisions that can be pointed to, all of which support the existence and the application of the jurisdiction. Thirdly, there is also in this jurisdiction a public policy element. Judges may be more amenable to make this sort of costs order against not very cost against not very good experts in less extreme circumstances. In the post-COVID-19 era we, which we are moving into, this may provide the impetus. There is a growing realization of the value and importance of the work carried out by the NHS, and judges may consequentially want to avoid wasting resources, its resources of time and money. And the last point is that the prudent solicitor ensures that one of the terms of any expert retainer is an obligation to disclose immediately any medical condition which may affect the ability of the expert to provide his or her services. Let me turn now to the next topic, commercial third-party funding and the so-called Arkin cap. Here, the story starts with Arkin and Borchard lines. This was a decision made back in the day when there were real concerns about access to justice caused by the limitations then imposed on civil legal aid. Those basic facts are illustrated by what had happened to Mr Arkin. He'd initially had legal aid, but it was withdrawn shortly after the claim was commenced. He limped on with solicitors and counsel on a CFA, but he couldn't afford, he couldn't obtain ATE, in fact, because he couldn't afford the premium. Two years into the litigation, though, he needed expert evidence. Now, we all know an expert cannot be retained on a CFA, simply cannot be retained on a CFA. So Mr Arkin turned to professional litigation funding for the funding for that expert evidence and for the litigation support services for the expert. That funder provided about £600,000 and would get roughly 25% of Mr Arkin's return. And that funder did not agree to provide any funding for ATE. A third-party costs order was made, but it was limited to the funding that the funder had provided. Was the decision widely accepted? No, it was controversial. It was criticised by Lord Justice Jackson 
in his review of civil litigation costs in the final report. In his view, it was wrong in principle that a litigation funder standing to recover a share of damages in the event of success should be able to escape part of the liability for costs in the event of defeat. He said that was unjust to the opponent and unjust to the client. Lord Justice Jackson recommended that either by way of rule change or by legislation, funders should potentially be liable for the full amount of adverse costs, subject, of course, to the discretion of the judge. But as we know, that rule change, that statutory intervention did not happen. The Arkin cap was applied in subsequent cases. It wasn't applied unquestioningly. Judicial doubts were raised. And those doubts have finally been resolved against the automatic application of that cap. And I'm now here talking about Chapelgate Credit Opportunity Master Fund Limited and James Money. Let's have a look at the facts of that case. The claimant bought the proceedings with the benefit of a CFA. The proceedings alleged various breach of various duties against administrators. It alleged sale of a key asset at an undervalue. There were allegations against another defendant of conspiracy and interference with the administration process. So they're serious allegations and they're allegations that potentially engage a public interest. That claim failed, and the defendant sought to recover costs of nearly £6 million from the commercial funder. The commercial funder had provided a total funding commitment of £1.25 million. It obviously sought to cap its liability at that level. But at first instance, upheld on appeal, the funder was held liable for costs without the application of the cap. Chapelgate had not funded part only of the action as Narkin. Its involvement was not limited to the funding of the expert and the support services for the expert. It had agreed a so-called waterfall. It would recover its funding and then its profit share before the lawyers and before the experts were paid. It had initially agreed to provide 2.5 million to fund the claim in return for a share of the winnings, but that was conditional on the claimant obtaining suitable ATE insurance. The claimant couldn't get that, but nevertheless, Chapelgate agreed to provide funding, but at a reduced level, 1.25 million, but still got the same level of recovery from the earlier, higher proposed level of commitment. Chapelgate also got its own ATE, though the premium was only payable to the extent that Chapelgate recovered any monies under the funding agreement. The case is interesting for the, a number of other costs issues. It involved an indemnity costs application that was successful against the claimant. Uh, Chapelgate did not dispute, rightly, as the Court of Appeal said, that an indemnity costs order having been made against the claimant, it was appropriate that an indemnity costs order should be made against it. Chapelgate had taken two points and it won on one. It said that its liability for costs should only be for the costs incurred after the date of the original funding agreement. And again, that wasn't challenged on appeal. They won on that. There has to be a causal link. The Arkin cap 
is what we're talking about here today. And let's look at the reasoning that the court gave for its approach. Firstly, the view of the judge supported by the Court of Appeal was that Arkin did not establish a binding rule or principle. It merely sets out an approach to be considered for application in similar cases. Takes you on to the facts. Chapelgate wasn't similar. The factors that were identified as being different. In Arkin, the funder had funded only a discrete area of the case. The size of the return. Chapelgate stood to receive a substantial up a substantial upside, 500% of the amount it had committed in funding, in priority to the claimant. That said, the court showed that Chapelgate was the party with the primary interest in the claim. Chapelgate also were aware of the nature of the case being pursued and that, that it meant that the defendants inevitably were required to incur legal costs in excess of Chapelgate's funding. And Chapelgate knew the claimant didn't have ATE insurance to meet the defendant's legal costs in the event of an adverse costs order. The judge perceived little risks of funders exiting the market, thus limiting access to justice, if this approach was taken. The view of the courts were that the wide availability of ATE means that funders will remain willing to support good claims. The Court of Appeal affirmed that approach but made it clear that Arkin was not redundant. There were cases where it would be right to follow it, particularly where there were closely comparable facts. Four points may I suggest to take away from this, and they link back to the three points of principle I outlined, I outlined at the beginning. In this sphere of costs, we're dealing with a statutory discretion where policy is so important. Words such as, phrases such as access to justice, ensuring a fair process, obligations to the court are repeated and relied upon. The court looks to devise a just solution. That's what it said it was doing in Arkin. Check the context of any decision that is being reviewed by the court in any application that you make or resist. What was that background? What was the background to that decision? Has public policy changed? Does it still remain appropriate? My second point, reflecting the fact that you're dealing with public policy, is check the evidence. Do you have the evidence available? We all think we know what public policy is. We will all find we're making assertions as to what it is. Consider whether in fact you need some evidence. How does commercial funding work? How is ATE available? What will happen if the argument you are making is followed? Where are the facts to support it? Now we know that Arkin is clearly a, a, an example, an approach. What are the facts the court will look at? The extent and the amount of the funding provided by the funder. The return the funder would make if the claim was successful. The extent to which an Arkin cap leaves the defendant out of pocket and the reasons why there is an insufficient level of ATE cover in place. Have your answers to those questions available in every case that you deal with. And finally, do not forget the parallel and related jurisdiction security for costs. You may be able to found an application for security for costs 
on similar facts to those that arose in Chapelgate, make the application earlier, before the costs are incurred, so that everyone moves forward knowing what the position is going to be. There will be other developments. There will be further podcasts to make on this. We're going to see the impact, if any, of Chapelgate on commercial third-party funding. Let's see what the impact is going to be on experts and those instruct them. I hope to speak to you about both of those topics on another occasion. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.